welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hi, David. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having us on the air. We have a very special guest today. And last week, we talked to Dr. James Pennybaker, who's a um, psychologist out of Austin, Texas. He's a social psychologist. He's done a lot of work on expressive writing. And we were talking between interviews about the relationship between stress and disease. And I know that data is very deep, and I wish I personally knew it better, but I know a lot about it. It's been my very distinct impression that when you're under more stress, why people get sick. The data is quite deep, and Dr. Pennybaker is very familiar with this, and we're talking about really basically today the relationship between stress and disease, and also how mental stress translates into physical symptoms through a direct chemical effect. But Dr. Pennybaker, welcome to our show, and also if you can just tell us again a little bit about your background, what you're doing, what you're up to, and how you came to this viewpoint about the immune system, expressive writing, disease, et cetera. Okay, it's good to be here. Uh, my background, I was trained as a social psychologist. I was somebody who, uh, even back in high school, was always interested in medicine and, and health. I, I came from a family where my mother was a, uh, a lot of her, she was a, a hypochondriac, and, <laughs> which that really helps to uh, orient one to, to try to understand the mind-body problem. Right. I was, my training was in social psychology, and I had always been interested in this, in how psychological states were related to biological activity. And this, so I, early on, I was interested in the autonomic nervous system. I was interested in uh, lie detection. I was interested in, in heart rate changes. And so much of my early time was in psychophysiology. And I became interested in terms of when do people get sick? Um, and we, there had been a tremendous amount of research in the 50s and 60s showing that people who had had traumatic experiences in their lives were much more likely to have every kind of health problem imaginable. Uh, and there was Holmes and Ray came up with a questionnaire that had you know, death of a spouse, death of a close friend, being put in jail, etc. And the more disruptive the trauma was, the higher the probability that the person would die in the next year, that they'd be hospitalized. And the, and the data was overwhelmingly overwhelming. And there, then an increasing number of animal studies started to show the same things. Massive traumatic experiences for a rat or a dog or, or a monkey also was associated with all sorts of disease processes. Everything from the accumulation of plaque in the arteries to heart problems to if they were prone to it, cancer deaths, immune problems, etc. So that was kind of my, my training. Uh, Plus, I was just interested in the psychology of all of this. Right. Why do people get sick and why do they get depressed? Well, the thing that's what I think is really a tragedy right now is that the term mind-body is a bit of a problem because it implies that the mind and body are separated. And my observation is it's just a unit. And the metaphor I like to use is try flying a Boeing 747 jet without a computer. The jet has all sorts of sensors that measure wind speed, fuel levels, flap, angles, et cetera, interprets that sensory data to fly the plane. It's not possible to fly that jet without a computer. Same thing with the human body, which is trillions of times more complicated than a jet, 
you're not going to run your body without a nervous system and vice versa. It's really just a unit response. And medicine somehow has gotten this idea that disease has structural problems. It's really dependent on the state of the body's physiology and chemistry. And we now know from neuroscience research that the mental sensory input has the same effects as a physical threat, same part of the brain, same chemical response. And of course, the problem with humans is that that since you can't escape your thoughts, that that becomes a sustained chemical assault on your body and people really do get sick. And so, in fact, and then of course, we know about the ACE studies, the average childhood experiences studies in the 1990s, but you're right. It actually started at the University of Washington in the 60s about this documentation of these stressful life events. People die. I mean, that's not imaginary pain. And you use the term psychophysiology. Can you explain that term clearly to the audience for me? Well, the by the way, the way that you are talking about the mind-body problem is exactly right. It's almost as though these are two language systems. The mind is biological, but uh, it's too complex to say, well, all of these, this is happening, this is happening in the brain. So it's kind of shorthand for the, the biology of what's going on inside the head. Right. Psychophysiology uh, is an area, it's almost, it hardly exists anymore as an individual field. Some of my friends would be horrified by my saying that. But the idea is it generally focused on the, uh, the autonomic nervous system. So uh, things that are associated like sweaty hands, uh, racing heart, uh, blood pressure, the autonomic nervous system. It's a, a system that we know is associated with stress and relaxation. And so we can, so this field of psychophysiology became really intrigued with, we can show that certain psychological changes bring about changes in biological activity. So if I wear, have you wear put on some sensors on the fingers that measures how much your hands sweat and just have you sit there quietly and then ask you threatening questions and you, you don't even have to answer them uh, or show you pictures that are upsetting that you don't have to do anything, we will see significant changes in how much your hands sweat, see significant changes in your heart rate, et cetera. And this is what's so interesting about it is we know psychological phenomenon bring about biological change. And that's what, that's what the field of psychophysiology has started. Right. So just to be clear, I mean, this is, I'm going to be a little cynical here. And of course, we've all studied the human body in, in great detail. We also learned in high school science class that if you're threatened, your heart races, you breathe faster, your muscles tense up, et cetera, and you, it's a fight, flight, fight, or freeze response. And that's not subtle. We, we all know that. Then in medicine right now, categorically, we are, are ignoring that. And we're trying to use all these structural reasons, which again, translates into procedures to treat people when the body's physiology is way off. And simple questions like what's happening at home, those questions aren't asked anymore. And if you're going home to an abusive situation or difficult situation, you are under threat. I mean, look at domestic violence. So you're under both a mental, emotional, and a physical threat. You walk back into the environment. So you point out an experiment where you just simply imagine something unpleasant. You start sweating. Think about walking into your house and physically being threatened or definitely emotionally being threatened. That's a huge problem. That's what, exactly right. And, and what the irony is, is the traditional medical model has been Oh, when you're in this environment, your hands get really sweaty. Well, you just need to take some drugs to make it so your hands, your, so your blood pressure goes down. Right. Completely ignoring 
kind of implying that, well, there's something the matter with your biology, so we'll just fix that. Right. No, and then, I mean, probably 90% of physical illnesses, in other words, your mental input or threats translates into adverse body chemistry, which translates into physical symptoms. None of that's imaginary. That's how the body functions. That's how we stay alive. So if you feel safe and relaxed, you get a very pleasant body chemistry. We gravitate towards things that are good and avoid things that are negative. That's how we survive, basically. Like sexual activity, procreation is a very pleasurable experience. You know, as creatures, living creatures would do anything to do that, but that's because it's a procreation survival thing, and that's a reward. And, of course, things that are hot, whatever, too hot, too bright, whatever, we avoid those. And what our body does automatically called the nociceptive system, it keeps us in a range of behaviors that are safe. And so we're not staring at the sun, we're not sitting on hot surfaces, et cetera. And so we're on automatic, automatic or an autopilot to remain in a safe range of behaviors. And the species who didn't pay attention to those cues, of course, didn't survive. Can you just present some of the data that shows that chronic stress does cause disease? Some of the, I mean, my observation has been both personally and with many patients that when you're in chronic stress, people get autoimmune disorders, they get cancer, they get all sorts of stuff. I mean, what would have been what are some of the what's some of the data on the link between chronic stress and disease? So the the data is pretty much uh, overwhelming that extremely high levels of stress over long periods of time really tax the body. The the individual does in fact get less get less sleep. They are they have elevated blood pressure, et cetera, higher rates of heart disease and so forth. However, there are times when people are under stress for a day, a week, maybe a little bit longer, but they're actually a little bit healthier. I mean, this is another irony. So for example, um, I've always been fascinated when people, there's a certain group of people who ha get migraines, but they get migraines when, when they go on vacation. And, right. or they, uh, I, I've actually done this research uh, looking at students who, under, who are under a lot of stress and getting a sense of their illness patterns and what happens when they go on spring break. A surprisingly number, high number of people get sick when they go on spring break or, or the Christmas holidays because they've been working like crazy. And during this period, they felt good but if you had measured their immune system, their immune system is greatly suppressed. And this, there's a wonderful book, uh, Robert Sapolsky has written several books, but one of his early books was Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And the idea is when, when an, an organism, a mammal, and probably other animals are, as well, under a great deal of stress, they suppress their immune system so they can run away, they can cope, and they actually feel good, they're, they're healthy. But while their immune system is suppressed, all these bacteria and viruses and so forth are having a field day in the body. And as soon as you're at a period where you can relax and take life easy, hey, it's spring break, hey, it's Christmas break or whatever, people get sick as dogs because uh, their immune system has been suppressed. So illness is kind of an odd thing here. So that sometimes when we are in a state that we can kick back and relax, we now start to we, there's a lot of inflammation that goes on, uh, increased rates of, of uh, migraines and so forth. So I wish it was as simple as when you're stressed, you're always sick, because sometimes when you feel good, you're biologically at risk. Right. 
So, it, but the point is, all of this is essentially coming back to this issue. Our psychological state has a tremendous impact on our on our biological state. Right. I'm split going back to the old language split of mind and body, but it's it's a, an efficient way to think about it. Right. Uh, also, why do you think? Well, a couple of things. So there's a paper, I don't know if you haven't seen this, it was in JAMA about a year ago out of Sweden. They looked at over 330,000 people in a registry. They looked at people under chronic stress versus those who weren't also at the siblings. And they found a very distinct increase in autoimmune disorders. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the first paper that really, we've been suspicious for a long time that chronic stress also you know, creates autoimmune disorders. But it's one of the clear... Um, papers that show that that effect, and somehow it's not just the that we've sold this to the public that a structural problem is the cause of your disease, but the doctors are acting the same way. The doctors are ignore that basic fact that when you're under a threat, your body is under a chemical assault, and when it's sustained, it's a huge problem on your body's actual function. And so that's a very distinct link between chronic stress and autoimmune disorders. What do you know? My impression, you know, we've read this data for a while that when people are in a chronic stress, that their lifespans are actually shortened by about seven years. Is that, is that your understanding also? I don't know the literature on that, but something like that wouldn't surprise me. And again, so much of this is how in the world are we defining chronic stress? But, but there is no doubt some of the best research has been done on people who are caretakers for a spouse who has Alzheimer's or other kind of major disease. And so they are now taxed at unbelievable levels. And the health problems that caregivers have are, are very well known now. Okay. It's such a stressor. One thing I'd like to comment on, which, which has come out in the last three years of our um, clinical care, is that we somewhat accidentally found out that we do a workshop every year in New York at the Omega Institute, Relief from Chronic Pain, and that's where we discover the rule of never discussing your pain. We also stumble across the fact that chronic pain has a tremendous impact on the family and vice versa, tremendous. And one of the ironies of the human experience is that, that is the deeper and more intimate your connections, <clears throat> the bigger the triggers. And what we found out is that we can do all sorts of medical interventions, including writing relaxation tools. But if you go home and get triggered or upset by a family member, which is common in chronic pain, why the reactions are intense. One research paper shows that the pain goes up dramatically when you're triggered, but yet you keep getting triggered over and over and over again. Since they're survival reactive triggers, they're not really that subject to rational interventions. I'm just curious what some of your observations are on family dynamics, chronic stress, disease, et cetera. So I haven't done any research in family dynamics myself. I, I've read it over the years, and the data, again, are really intriguing. So I know that there have been some interesting studies looking at situations where you, you watch a family and you see how they're all rewarding, reinforcing and punishing one another. So for example, one study, uh, they looked at people where where a a spouse was brought in to watch uh, their their husband or wife undergo a procedure that was painful. And um, in one condition, 
if the spouse is supportive, the pain hurts a lot less for the person. If they are uh, if not supportive, uh, it, it is much worse. But then there are other situations where the spouse essentially is rewarding the other for complaining about their problems. Right. Tell me more about the pain that you're experiencing. Right. And this is more in at, at home setting. So, right. But there's no question that family dynamics really influence all sorts of health problems. Right. Now, I know there's also a study showing, again, the, illustrating the, the direct effect of chronic stress on the body's function. And there's a gentleman by the name of Copeland who did some studies looking at bullying at school. And what they found out is that they drew CRT proteins, which is an inflammatory marker on kids who have been bullied. And having a higher inflammatory marker, by the way, is, is not a great thing. It really signifies heart disease, all sorts of autoimmune disorders. Having elevated inflammatory markers is a major problem. But they found out that the kids who've been bullied had significantly higher levels of C-reactive protein than the normal kid. But what was disturbing is that the bullies had significantly lower levels of inflammatory markers than the kids who were bullied. Mm -hmm. it, it, it turns out there's actually a physiologically, it's physiologically rewarding actually to be a bully. You have more power, more control than, this, than the kid who's forced to go to school and be bullied is trapped. The same thing in family dynamics, you're trapped. And I think probably being trapped is maybe one of life's ultimate stressors. We talked mm -hmm. about the expressive writing on the earlier podcast, is that somehow expressive writing at least releases your mind's feeling of being trapped. But kids are off, you know, people are often physically <clears throat> trapped by circumstances, which is a big problem. Mm -hmm. And again, in this day and age of medicine, we're not really asking the full question, you know, what's going on? We're not really getting the full picture. We're trying to treat symptoms instead of the root cause. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, it's a profound paper. It's been reproduced multiple times, is that bullies actually are rewarded physiologically for being bullies. Right, and also socially. So their friends all you know, think that they're cool, or sometimes do, and the, the, the poor victim is now further denigrated by other people at the school as well. So it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Right. The other thing is that with the prior traumatic events where you have a certain amount of stresses as a kid, your hype, your hype, the, way, the way creatures survive, if something in your past was dangerous, of course you're going to avoid it. You look at my cat, you just have to scare my cat once, and if you're that same person, that cat's not going to hang around you. Especially with dogs, same thing. They get programmed very quickly. So if you're raised in a chaotic household, there's many things that are, that are dangerous. They really are dangerous. Then in adulthood, when you, when you can take care of yourself, those same things may not actually be dangerous, but they seem dangerous. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely, yeah. And that's why I don't like the, the term PTSD very much because <clears throat> everything, every time you're anxious or frustrated, particularly anxious, you've connected to some event in the past that reminded you of danger. And so at some point, if you came from an extremely traumatic environment and you're hyperreactive now, you could define that as PTSD. But to me, it's just sort of a graded scale that the more traumatic your past, the more things in this current environment that are dangerous. Any thoughts on that? Well, one of the interesting problems with things like uh, PTSD, but also just, we know from classical conditioning, and that is a person might have 
developed a, a major, may have had a horrible experience in terms of a, a car accident. And so in the car accident maybe occurred in front of a house with a big palm tree. And th so now they develop not just uh, anxiety about driving, but now a palm tree. And then, you know, then they go to, they go on a vacation to get away from things. And of course they stupidly choose Hawaii and they, there's palm trees, but it's right by the ocean. And, and so one of the big problems with, we know with uh, classical conditioning, a form of learning is that things can start to generalize. So a really powerful experience now can start to take over your life because so many things are associated with it. There's an interesting observation because if you look at the neuroscience lab out of Chicago, there's a couple of papers that point out very clearly that chronic pain is now defined as an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences and the memory can't be erased. That that's just dead on with, with, with what you're talking about. Um, I'd like to um, finish up here a bit with just, if you can spend a few minutes just telling us about your ongoing research, what, what frontiers do you think are opening up that need to be looked at more carefully? And then maybe what, what are some things that medicine, and how can we, change some of the paradigm to get us back to the high school science class about how the body responds to the environment in the sustained adverse chemical environments, a big problem. I mean, right now medicine is ignoring that. So I'm just curious right now what you're doing research wise, um, what, what's something we can do to help flip this paradigm? <laughs> uh, you're asking a very difficult question because I have gone off into some very, very different areas that are not, that closely related to health. Um, the expressive writing work was something that was really transformative for me in terms of research. And I became interested in terms of how people write. And, and can we learn more about how people come up with stories and are some stories or ways of writing or talking associated with better health or better psychological adjustment? And this led me to develop a computer program to analyze language itself, to, to, to pull out, are there certain ways that we can look at words and word usage that tells us about uh, how a person is thinking, how they're feeling, how they're connecting with others. And this, I won't go into details, but I've spent the last 20, 25 years playing with language fairly seriously. And among other things, I started to look at how people use language in social media and how we can start looking at how not just individuals use language, but how entire groups use language. So for example, one thing that's actually related to health is we've been looking at uh, Reddit. Reddit is a, is a, a social media place that's essentially like a giant bulletin board where you have so, all the- what's it, what's it called? Reddit? Reddit, Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T. Okay. And, it, and millions of people go to it. And the, the, the demographic is not us. It's people probably under the age of 40 are the primary users. But there's these millions of, there's about 130,000 different communities. And you know some are related to certain diseases. Some of them are related to football, Teams. Others are related to sewing and crocheting and croqueting, for all I know. They're also city, city ones. So uh, for every major city, there's a, a Reddit group that people talk about their community. We were looking, we've analyzed data up 
from hundreds of thousands of people in various cities. And two of them we looked at were Houston, Texas, and Miami. And we were able to get all the posts in these two cities in the months before and after two hurricanes that it hit. Hurricane Harvey, which was devastating for Houston, and Hurricane Irma, which occurred about three weeks after Harvey in Miami, which looked as though it was gonna just flatten Miami because it was a, a category four or five hurricane that was coming. And then it, it appeared and just, just turned into almost nothing. And what was interesting is we could track how these cities were dealing with this upcoming major threat, how they dealt with it during the, the week or two of the, while it's there, or, or when it should have been there, and then how they dealt with it in the months afterwards. And what was interesting was with, with uh, Houston, you, because no one appreciated how devastating it would be, is that beforehand there, there was talk about it, but not, it didn't change a lot. And then afterwards, what was interesting was the degree to which people came together, and, and you can see this with thousands and thousands of posts, people are now mutually supportive and so forth. Now, one thing we looked at was how much they talked about health. Because when you're under stress, people often talk about their health a lot. In the months afterwards in Houston, they talked about health virtually not at all. In other words, Hurricane Harvey made the community healthier. And then you, go, you go to Irma, and what happens there is before it, because they had seen what had happened in, at, with Houston, and they thought that they were all going to be killed. In the two weeks before, the city of Miami, they, they were, became a really tight community, and then Irma happened, and then afterwards, it was over. And you didn't see any kind of uh, increase in community. In fact, people talked about community at much lower levels and their health concerns started to go way up over the next several weeks. Interesting. And, that, and we found a similar thing with 9-11. With, uh, uh, and we tracked blogs from, from about a thousand people who, used, who wrote in blogs a lot. And what we found was after 9-11, it made people deeply sad, upset, but everything we tracked is it brought the culture together and health issues and depression issues, et cetera, dropped like crazy. In other wow. words, major events bring people together. And when, when people are socially connected, their health improves. Right. Now that's fascinating because one of the big factors in the, pro in the doc process is stage four is actually reconnecting with friends and family. And I noticed this years ago in my questionnaire that people that were getting better usually checked off reconnecting with friends and family as a major factor. And in the prior podcast, we talked about creating a new language. And if you're trying to fix your pain, your tension's on the pain, I tell my patients, you must well put your hand right into a hornet's nest. And what you're doing, I talk about moving forward with your pain as you start moving forward, reconnect with friends, families, interests, society, which even bigger is giving back, you're moving away from the pain. Paradoxically, if you're waiting for the pain to go away before you live your life, the pain's still running the show. As you move forward with your life, regardless of the pain, things change dramatically, especially when you're more concerned about others than you are yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's, do you, do you, is that data published, by the way? Have you got a chance to publish that? Not yet. We've thought uh, uh, this particular project 
I've been doing with one of my students, Sara Saraj, and uh, what we're finding actually matches with some research that's being done at UC Irvine with Roxanne Silver and her group as well. So it's Interesting. it's a phenomenon that we've seen before. And, and the, the September 11th data, that ha was published. I'll send you a couple of papers. There's a, a Cigna survey, Cigna Insurance Company survey, looking 20,000 people plus that documented every city, every county, large, small, it's unbelievable. The number was right at 53% of Americans feel socially isolated. Mm -hmm. and of course, in chronic pain, you tend to withdraw because you don't feel like doing anything. And one of the cardinal symptoms, I think, of chronic pain is becoming socially isolated. Mm -hmm. There's a book out of Chicago um, called Loneliness. Have mm -hmm. you heard of this book by chance? Have you seen I that? Yeah. yeah. It's remarkably, it's a quick read. I would recommend the audience take a look at that. And he just documents really nicely, really concise manner about the effect of social isolation on your health. Again, the physical symptoms are just identical to chronic pain. It's the same thing. But again, we know looking outwards always a good thing for your sense of well-being. It's also excellent as far as your physical health it makes a huge difference. Well, Jamie, thank you very, very much. I learned a lot today. I'm going to be emailing you a little bit, trying to pick up some more pearls of wisdom here. And then maybe in a month or two, if you're up for it, I'd love to still talk about these obsessive thought patterns, which I, it, which is a little different than just suppressing thinking. It's very, very interesting concept because obsessive, obsessive thought patterns are actually one of the cardinal symptoms of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And I call it phantom brain pain. The sort of these irrational spinning circuits that you can't get rid of. They're not subject to, subject to rational intervention. And I, I'd just be really interested in some of your thoughts on that. But this has been a phenomenal interview. I really appreciate your time. You bet. I've enjoyed it. Well, thank you, David and Jamie, for another great interview. And we want to uh, remind our listeners to come back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And another uh, reminder, uh, don't forget to visit our website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.